I was recently targeted by the algorithms of my social media feed. Now, I may be in the minority here, but I actually like getting targeted ads in my feed. If I'm gonna see an ad, I'd prefer they be about things I actually like rather than some random thing I care nothing about. I've actually found some pretty cool things in this way that I wouldn't have found otherwise. But a few weeks ago, the wonders of the algorithm presented me with a bracelet that contained the entire Bible. It uses some special nanotechnology and it has every single word of the Bible inside of a chip in this digital screen thingy. I'm not exactly sure how it works. And I know that you can't even see the Bible words with your naked eyes and that you'd need a microscope. But the idea of wearing the entire Bible around my wrist was mind boggling. And it looks super fashionable too. I was this close to buying it. They were having a sale, my birthday was coming up, so why not treat myself? But in the end, reason kicked in. It was far out of my budget, and I'm not sure I actually like wearing things on my wrist anyway. But the entire Bible is a fashion accessory. It sure gave new meaning to keeping the word of God on us at all times. Maybe you feel the same way about wanting God's words to be nearer to you, to actually be physically present on you at all times. Or maybe your algorithm looks way different than mine and the thought about having the Bible and a piece of jewelry is laughable. We all have different responses when we hear the word Bible. Is it a word that brings you a sense of feeling of joy, comfort, peace, companionship, insight, reverence? Or does it evoke in you something more akin to pain, confusion, judgment, outdatedness, fantasy, boring, unapproachable. If I'm honest, I've used each one of these words at least once in my life to describe my relationship with the Bible, and it remains an ever-evolving dance. Reading the Bible is hard. It's always been hard for me. I'm a slow reader, and I go in with this expectation of needing a new revelation about who God is and needing to hear his voice every time I read a passage. But more often than not, it's a dry desert. Sometimes it's a slog, a chore. Sometimes I change up the version or translation in the hopes of spicing up my reading time. Sometimes I even buy a whole new Bible because it makes me excited to, get into, to dig into the fresh pages of a beautifully designed Bible. Like this one, which I bought last month. <laughs> if I had a Bible for every time I wanted to try a fresh approach to reading the Bible, I'd have five Bibles, because that's exactly what I've done. And here's the thing. This is all okay. I think we too often go into our time with the Bible and into our time with the Lord with baggage and expectation and pressure, but we don't need to. We need to just let all of that go. One of the best ways to let go is to start anew. We're already a few weeks into our Living the Word series, but I wanted to take a few steps back and return us to the basics. Before we can learn to live the Word or even begin to access the Living Word, we need to know what the Living Word is and what it isn't, and then let this inform us about how to approach engaging with it. So what is the Living Word? What is the Bible? Thankfully, we have ChatGPT to answer that for us. Here's what ChatGPT had to say for itself when I asked it, what is the Bible? And I quote, 
The Bible is a sacred text in Christianity, composed of a collection of religious writings that are considered by Christians to be divinely inspired. It is divided into two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, also known as the Hebrew Bible, contains religious texts that were written before the birth of Jesus Christ. It consists of various books, including historical accounts, laws, poetry, and prophetic writings. These books are considered sacred by both Jews and Christians, although the arrangement and number of the books may differ between the two traditions. The New Testament focuses on the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as well as the early Christian community and its teachings. It includes the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John which provide accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, as well as the Acts of the Apostles, letters written by early Christian leaders such as Paul, Peter, and John, and the Book of Revelation. The Bible is considered by Christians to be the inspired Word of God and serves as a guide for faith and practice. It addresses various themes, including creation, humanity's relationship with God, morality, salvation, and the future. The Bible has had a profound influence on Western civilization, shaping religious, moral, and cultural beliefs and practices for centuries. It has been translated into numerous languages and is widely read and studied by millions of people around the world." End quote. I've got to say, I'm actually extremely impressed by this response. This is my very first time using any sort of AI, and as a skeptic, I was not hopeful with what I was going to get. Honestly, though, this may be all you need to know, and I think I can just close out in prayer now. Thank you, AI, for taking my job away. But seriously, this is a very good summary of what the Bible is. It's not one book, but a collection, a library of many books of various styles written by various authors, but all inspired by God and telling a cohesive story that spans generations. It deals with God's relationship to a specific group of people, the Israelites, how he created them, how they strayed from him, and how he rescued them and continues to rescue them today. But it's also at the same time an account of God's relationship with every human person ever, past, present, and future. And ultimately, everything in the Bible points to Jesus, how he is the ultimate savior and redeemer that restores broken humankind to God the Father. He was there in the beginning. He was there every step of the way. He is still here today, and he will always be. It's quite incredible when you look at it from this bird's eye view like this. There's no other document that comes even close to what the Bible is in terms of its literary and historical scope alone, never mind the spiritual truths and mysteries it reveals and holds within itself. I'd like to explore the Bible now from four different angles. The contents and structure of the Bible, the literary styles or genres of the books of the Bible, some overarching themes and patterns that we can find in it, and then finally, the mystery of the Bible. So what's in the Bible? What are the actual books that we will find in here? As many of you likely already know, and as ChatGPT kindly told us, the Bible is divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are 66 books in total, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. 
Now additionally, if we wanted to, we can divide the Testament into subsections. The Old Testament consists of three sections referred to as the Tanakh, which is an acronym for the following three sections. T is for Torah, which includes the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. According to tradition, these were written by Moses. And while many translations refer to it as the law, Torah literally means teaching or instruction. It's also sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch, and essentially it recounts the creation of the world, the Israelite people, and God establishing his relationship with them. The Nevi'im, or prophets, contain writings of both history and prophecy about Israel from the prophet's perspective. Jewish tradition counts them as eight books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all 12 minor prophets. Then we have the Ketuvim, or writings, which is the third section of the Hebrew Bible, and it contains 11 books of wisdom, poetry, and history. Moving on, we have the New Testament, which is comprised of three main portions as well. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in which early followers of Jesus wrote many accounts of his life, death, and resurrection. These became known as the Gospels, a term that simply means good news. Then we have Acts, which recounts the growth of the early church and how it spread throughout the Mediterranean. And then the epistles or the letters, in which Christian leaders of the time sent letters of advice to specific groups of followers scattered throughout the Mediterranean. So as you can see, the Bible is not one straightforward narrative book, but rather a library of many books. And each of these books have different characteristics to them themselves or different genres. And this is a key aspect of approaching the Bible, understanding that it's a collection of different types of literary styles as well. Each book of the Bible is written in a certain style, with a certain audience in mind and for a certain purpose. And so when we read them, it would do us well to take them in their original contexts. We can divide the Bible into three main types of literature or writing styles, narrative, poetry, and prose or discourse. <clears throat> Most of the Bible is comprised of the narrative literary style and narratives, stories, are our universal means of communication. They're how our brains think and make connections of our lives and things around us. They focus on a character and a plot in a specific setting and the authors of the narratives in the Bible refrain from any moral commentary, rather allowing us to discern and infer our own conclusions based on the actions of the characters we encounter and the experiences they have and the consequences of those actions. Within the narrative genre, there are also different kinds of sub-narrative genres. Historical narratives, parables, biographical narratives. And an important thing to note here is that when we say narrative, we aren't meaning fiction. These were real events and real people, but the way they are recounted is in a narrative style with classic story structures and elements. The second main genre is poetry. Now you know what poetry is, even if it's hard to define specifically. Fancy words, metaphors, heavy visual language. The poetry in the Bible is a type of free verse. It doesn't rhyme and it doesn't have a meter or timing like we're used to in more modern poetry. It's usually written in couplets, two lines that complement each other, that makes a point and then bolsters that point in a different way. And sometimes the poetry can seem simple when we read it, but I think it's because we lose a lot of the beauty and nuance when we translate it into English. 
And like narratives, there's also subgenres of poetry as well. There are songs or psalms, reflective or wisdom poetry, prophetic poetry, or apocalyptic poetry. The last type of literary style is prose or discourse, which is basically speeches, letters, or essays that have been written as arguments for our faith and reasoning to help us make rational connections to other parts of the scripture and into our own lives, and to hopefully provide us with ways to improve our reasoning, logic, and behavior. Some of the books in the Bible are only one of these types of genres, like Psalms or Proverbs, which are just poetry. But other books use a combination of these genres, sometimes all three of them, and alternate between them going back and forth in the same book. And so when we approach each book of the Bible, we need to discern which type of literature it features and which one we're encountering and where. And this will help us receive its content in the way that it was intended. Now here's where things start to get fun and mysterious. There are overarching themes in the Bible. They're often hard to pick out at first. Often, they can only be discovered in community and over the course of our whole lives of reading the Bible. And this essentially is how the Bible's meant to be explored, together as a community, bit by bit, every day, over our whole life, building on our understanding, brick by brick. Over time, you'll start to notice words that appear many times throughout the Bible. You'll start to see books and authors referencing each other. You'll notice patterns. And remember, everything in the Bible is pointing to one thing. There's one connecting thread narrative, and that's Jesus. The more you read the Bible, even the Old Testament, the more you'll begin to see him in every page and how he's connecting everything. Here's, here's another example, though, of a theme or motive we find. Water. In Genesis 1, God separates chaotic waters to create dry land for humankind to live and flourish. Then there's the flood when God rescues Noah and his family and starts a new life out of those chaotic waters. In Exodus, the Israelites flee from Egypt through a parted sea. God calms the chaotic waters and brings his people to safety and new life. This theme of water is repeated a number of times in the poetry books and in the prophets, sometimes as literal waters and sometimes as a metaphor. And then when we reach the gospels in the New Testament, Jesus goes to the Jordan River and is baptized in the water and when he comes out of the waters, that's when God announces that he is the one who will lead everyone to salvation. He is the connecting thread of all those themes of water that we've read until now. There are many themes and motifs like this throughout the Bible. Lambs and sacrifices, the serpent, bread and wine. And if we want to get super nerdy, there's even this thing called biblical numerics, where there are meanings behind numbers used in the Bible, and they're also repeated. It adds to the depth of the Bible and shows how intricate and interwoven it is and how it was designed and orchestrated by God and how he connects it all together, even though it was compiled over thousands of years by various authors. He's holding it together and he has a specific design in the seeming randomness. The number seven, for example, that recurs throughout the Bible. Uh, the number of days of creation was seven. The days of a week is seven. The number of biblical feasts is seven and so forth. It's commonly referred to as the number of perfection or completion. And if you will, uh, let's nerd out for a little bit. So we know that the creation account was a seven-day process. God created the universe and everything in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. In Genesis 1, chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, in the original Hebrew, it would look like this, read from right to left. I can't speak or read Hebrew, so I'm not going to, but that's what it looks like. But here are some cool things if we dig into the, the numeric patterns. Now, what do you notice? There are seven words in this verse. And furthermore, there are 28 letters in the verse, which is divisible by seven. And the key words, God, heaven, and earth have 14 letters, which is divisible by seven. And the remaining words have 14 letters, which is divisible by seven. Then in the New Testament, there are multiple constructs of seven. In the book of Revelation, there are seven churches, seven angels to the seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpet plagues, seven thunders, and seven last plagues. There are also seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus spoke seven words from the cross. Now you can read into this as much as you want or as little as you want, but for me, it adds to the depth and beauty of the Bible. A verse can seem so simple and uninteresting upon first glance and when you look at it out of context. But when we sit with it and we look at it in the context it was written, when we line it up with the overarching narrative and themes of the scripture, we can see that there is a whole lot more than we might have first realized. And that's the final aspect of the Bible that I want to sit with today, the mystery of it. The title of this video is called Everything You Need to Know About the Bible, but I confess that it's a bit of a misnomer. I'm not going to tell you everything you need to know about the Bible, mostly because there wouldn't be enough time. And also because I think as much as we can study it, I don't think we ever will fully be able to understand the entire complexity of the Bible and of God ever with our limited, finite human brains. But that's where faith comes in. We can't possibly know everything there is to know about God. We can't possibly know everything there is to know about his word. We can't possibly know everything about what he's going to do with our own lives. But we can trust despite that. If we knew and understood everything, we wouldn't need God. We'd be God. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is found in the book of John. It's so mysterious and beautiful and confusing and profound. I'd like to read it for you now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. There are some phrases in this passage, especially the first verse, that just seem impossible to grasp. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? Like what? Talk about a deep mystery. But let's explore this passage with what we've talked about today. John is found in the New Testament. It's one of the Gospels, one of the good news accounts of Jesus' life. It's written by the Apostle John, who was an original disciple of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other Gospels, are grouped together as 
what's called the synoptic gospels, which means seeing together. And they all reflect the other in, to very deg various degrees. But John's gospel is different. He focuses a lot more on the supernatural characteristics of Jesus, his deity, his wonder, his otherworldliness. And these opening lines show that intent right off the bat. And I think that's why I'm drawn to it, this mysteriousness of it. In terms of its literary style, the Gospel of John is a mix of many of the genres. Like the other three Gospels, it is a historical chronicle, a narrative. But this passage that we read specifically also features strong poetic language and allusions. And I'd even say it's a prose and discourse because it's presenting forth an idea of Jesus' eternal nature that forces us to grapple with and reframe our minds about who he is. It was also written in a specific time period and culture. We don't know for sure when exactly John wrote this, but it is speculated that he may have written it in the late first century AD when he was about 90 years old. Of the four gospels, it was the last to be written. John knew many of the Greek writings and teachings that were popular and respected during this time. And he references, he references that knowledge when he talks about the word in the opening verses. The original Greek text uses the word logos, it's a word that comes with a lot of meanings packed into it, and there's no single English equivalent that exists that can better express the full meaning of it. It's also not a word found in the Old Testament. So, in the beginning was the word means in the beginning was logos, which essentially means at the beginning of everything, there was this entity we know as God who embodied and created the rational principle on which everything is founded. The passage also goes on to describe the unique relationship between the triune God, which is the Trinity of God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When John says the word was with God, he means that the divine word, Jesus Christ, was not only present alongside God from all eternity, but was also in a living, dynamic, co-equal relationship of close communion with him. And we know that this word... This logos is Jesus because in verse 14, John says that the word became flesh. And we've just read this in the other gospels, the birth of Jesus, God becoming human, Emmanuel, God with us. John also declares though that the word was God. Jesus is equal yet distinct to God the Father. Now these are all fundamental, incredibly important claims that John is making. He's saying that Jesus was not only present at creation, but he was also responsible for creation. He's saying that Jesus is eternal. He's been present since the beginning and will continue to exist without end. And he's saying that Jesus is God. It's a very big bite to chew on. And it's just one verse. And it's hard to fully grasp. But again, that's where the mystery comes in. God is majestic and powerful, and he holds mysteries that we can never truly grasp. We have to hold it a little lightly and let it wash over us. Kind of the same way we experience stories or music or art or nature. There's this indescribable sensation and understanding you get from witnessing something, even if you can't quite fully understand or articulate what you've just experienced. And this is where the living part of living word comes into play. The Bible is living and active. The Bible is the living and abiding word of God. Jesus says his words are spirit and life. But how can this be? How can a book, printed words on a page, be a living and breathing thing? 
because its very existence was inspired by God. It was breathed out by him. His words, his breath, have the power to create life. He spoke the universe into being, and he spoke the words that are written here. And that same power that created life all those millennia ago is permeated in here still today. So when we read the Bible, we're partaking in this mysterious aspect of God that creates life even now. I recently took my son to a planetarium show at the Academy of Sciences. It was called Dark Universe, and it presented to us the concepts of dark matter and dark energy, and how these are what make up the vast majority of the universe, yet we don't quite know what it is. And as their 3D map of the universe pulled back through time and space, and they presented what they thought dark matter and energy looked like, threads, threads of nothing or something, connecting the universe, holding the universe in place, providing for it the structure and materials and conditions it needs to survive, I couldn't help but think, wow, this is like the Holy Spirit. What if dark matter, dark energy, is actually the physical representation of the Holy Spirit? And that's what we access when we read the Bible, the living word. The same God, the same logos, the same word who was there before anything was there, made everything, made us, and shared a document with us that reveals to us and gives us access to and relationship with the same God, the same Logos, the same word that was there before anything was made. I've heard people say that the Bible wasn't written for us. And what they mean by this is that it's a specific historical account about a specific group of people written for them by them. And this is true contextually speaking, and as I mentioned earlier, it gives us the right perspective with which to receive the content. But I don't think it's the whole picture. I do think the Bible was written for us. It was written thousands of years ago during a specific time period by a specific group of people for a specific group of people. But God had us in mind today. He had you and me in mind when he wrote it. He had always had us in mind. I mean, the word was there before anyone knew how to write, and the word will be there long after we even remember how to read. This great big cosmic mystery that is God is revealed to us in this written document. And what is he saying? What is his overarching narrative? Who is he pointing us to? Himself. Jesus. He is the whole point. And when we approach the Bible with that perspective, when we spend time reading with that narrative in mind, when our questions are about who rather than what or why, then we find the mysteries unraveled and the answers we've been seeking all along. When we approach the Bible from the context it's meant to be read, when we sit with the intentional styles and themes it presents, when we allow the interconnected mysteries to wash over us, we will find that it breathes new life into us. Allow me to close our time together by praying. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth in it, for the mysteries in it, for all that it reveals about you and your character. I pray that you give us eyes to see it in a new way. I pray that you give us the mind to be able to understand what we are reading and what we are encountering. I pray that you give us the heart to receive what you are wanting to communicate to us through what we encounter. I pray that you give us 
the habits and the discipline to keep at it day after day, week after week, year after year, so that slowly but surely your word infuses our very beings and transforms us into new creations. And I pray ultimately that in our time spent reading the Bible, in our time spent with you, in our time that we've shared today, that we become closer to you, closer to the knowledge, closer to the understanding that all of this points to you and how much you love us. In Jesus' name, we thank you and we give you glory. Amen. A bomb for every moon The rising sun Anointed one Faithful and true Desire of every nation The ache in every heart Behold the Lamb The Son of Man The perfect Son of God He brings color into a gray world. <laughs> He's the true rainbow. 
the one who is the light of the world, who makes everything come alive. It's such a blessing to have the Lord touch our heart. And my prayer is that he would touch you, that he would really touch you today, that you would feel his goodness and his love, that we would pursue him with greater intention, devotion, and loyalty. I pray that the Lord would help all of us in our weakest places, in our places of discouragement and in our anxious thoughts. In fact, I ask that he would keep you, loved one, in every way, in your spirit, in your soul, in your mind. Ah, yes, Lord, and in our bodies, kept in every way, his word alive in us. <laughs> Remember, before we can live the word out, we gotta let the word live within. Ha, let it be so, Jesus. We love you. We wanna be open to your words, open to your promptings. It's so good to follow you, Jesus, God's word in full color.